continuing in our sermon series. We are coming closer and closer to the end of the book of Exodus. And today we will be in Exodus 31. Well, you may have heard of the great resignation that has been going on. Almost 48 million people in America quit their jobs in 2021. Almost 48 million people. According to the Senage Group, a research firm, uh, the top three reasons for people quitting were in the survey that they had. The first was, I wanted more money. The second was, I felt burned out and unsupported. And the third was, I no longer feel like I'm growing in my position. All around us, burnout is high. Frustrations with work are high. The pandemic has really altered and changed so much of our life and existence. Some people's jobs completely disappeared. Some new jobs appeared. Uh, The way in which we work is totally different, and it is causing a lot of struggle. People are quitting. Some people have lost a job. Some folks are struggling with job satisfaction. Maybe that describes you here this morning. Maybe not. Maybe you love your job and feel like you're thriving for the first time and hitting a groove. Or maybe you feel like, I want to leave. Or maybe you did. Maybe you're stuck in a job in which you feel no satisfaction. Or maybe you don't have a job for whatever reason. You lost your job. You're transitioning between things. Um, Disability prevents you from uh, maintaining employment. You have lack of opportunity in finding a position. At the end of the day, if that describes you, and you're struggling through those things, what happens when you put your head on the pillow at night? Probably two potential options. One, you feel so discouraged. You feel so discouraged and you feel that you're worthless not satisfied in what you're doing with your life or your day, and you feel like you're a mistake, that you have no purpose. Or maybe you feel super discouraged, and when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you commit yourself to harder work. You're going to rise and grind. Find a side hustle. You're going to get going. No rest. You're going to press on and feel like it's up to you. You will determine and seize your purpose. Now, there's probably more than those two options, but it's a good preacher trick to just give you two options to think about. But what if there's a better way? What if there's a better way? What if we can not just be satisfied in what we do in our job, but also in who we are as a person? What if we can discover our purpose regardless of our paid or unpaid position? What if we can create and craft the world, create culture, have dominion, shape and cultivate like Dr. Piotrowski spoke about last week, uh, last Sunday, with the joy of our creator? What if there's a way for us to find just a little slice of shalom, of peace, of thriving? How do we do that? Well, today, I want to say that we can do so. We can find satisfaction in what we do and in who we are by working and resting 
to the glory of God. And the key to this is understanding who God is and who we are. Today, we want to look at that we can craft with purpose or work with purpose because we are crafted with purpose. We can craft with purpose because we are crafted with purpose. And we can rest with pleasure because we are crafted with purpose. Now, in this text this morning in Exodus 31, uh, we've kind of been walking through, right? Uh, God has delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. He brought them to the mountain, Mount Sinai. He gave them his law, and then he gave them uh, an explanation of how he will, or how, how you can apply that law, right? We looked at the Ten Commandments, then we looked at a couple of places in which there is uh, specific cases for how you understand the law and how you apply it. And then God gave instructions to the tabernacle, this place in which he's going to meet with his people. All of these detailed instructions about how you are going to come and worship God. And now we're here in this text, and God's going to give some specifics on how they're going to create this tabernacle. So, Exodus 31, we're going to start in verse 1, go through 11 to start. Then the Lord said to Moses, Look, I have specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, grandson of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master craftsman, expert in working with gold, silver, and bronze. He is skilled in engraving and mounting gemstones and in carving wood. He is a master at every craft. And I have personally appointed Oholiab, son of Asamach, of the tribe of Dan, to be his assistant. Moreover, I have given special skill to all the gifted craftsmen so they can make all the things I have commanded you to make. The tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark's cover, the place of atonement, all the furnishings of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its accessories, the incense altar, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the wash basin with its stand, the beautifully stitched garments, the sacred garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments for his sons to wear as they minister as priests, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense for the holy place. The craftsmen must make everything as I have commanded you. We can craft with purpose because we were crafted with purpose. God has given these instructions to build this beautiful tabernacle. We've been looking at what does it mean to have this uh, roaming sanctuary with Israel? And God has designed it specifically. Now, think about this. The tabernacle, it's going to be overlaid with gold. They're going to have purple fabric, great woodworking, this gorgeous tabernacle in the desert. On the heels of fleeing oppression and slavery, they're going to gather together on this mountain. They've just been delivered out of slavery for 400 years. They're going to live in the desert for another 40 years. They don't quite know that yet, but they're going to live in the desert for another 40 years, and God instructs them to build this beautiful thing overlaid with gold. Like, shouldn't we settle down before making something nice? Right? Like, God, we're renting here. You don't 
paint the walls. You don't make it super nice. You're just renting. Let's, let's, let's wait until we buy a house here before we make something beautiful. And, and, and even when we buy a house, let's wait until the kids are gone because they're going to break the beautiful things. Right? Let's limit the extravagance. People have to eat. We just got out of slavery. See, what we learn from the way in which God is doing these things is that the Christian story is not one of utilitarianism. Limiting the extravagance because there is suffering and people in need, people that need the gospel or need food and clothing and shelter. Yes, absolutely. God has actually just told them in the law, you're going to care for neighbor. I've given you detailed instructions about how you're going to love me and love neighbor and take care of the poor and oppressed among you. And yet, life is not life to the glory of God without art and beauty, without story, music, architecture, poetry, gardening, food. Not just food to be able to live, but food to be able to enjoy. The beautiful combination of flavor, new ways of using ingredients. I mean, look at, just look at the beauty God has invested in things that literally get burned up or die every year. I mean, think about this. Snowflakes. There are no two snowflakes alike. Ever. Right? Like mathematicians are like, it's statistically impossible for two snowflakes to be exactly alike. And then they fall from the sky and get lumped up in a giant pile and you don't even see it. That is absurd detail. Meaningless detail. Unnecessary detail. Unless the universe is meant not just to be inhabited, but to be enjoyed. Unless the universe is more like a curated art gallery than a disorganized junkyard. All around us, there is evidence that the universe is created by God to display his incredible glory as a master craftsman. And here's the thing. You get to join God in crafting the universe. You get to join God in crafting the universe. You are made in God's image. Now, there are so many things that we can say when the book of Genesis talks about man and woman being made in God's image. It means a whole bunch of things. But one of the things that we can very clearly say is it means you are a creator. You are designed and made specially by God to contribute to the universe. Uh, Andy Crouch in his book, Culture Making, says this, A human baby is the strangest and most wonderful creature this world can offer. No other mammal emerges so helpless from the womb, utterly unable to cope with the opportunity and adversity of nature. Yet no other creature holds such limitless possibility. Limitless possibility. You are created in God's image to cultivate, to create, to craft. Now, Let's notice a few things about this text that relate to what does it mean for you and I to craft. Well, first we can notice that God chooses specifically. He says, Bezalel, a grandson of her, and Oholiab. 
These two men I am choosing specifically to be the master craftsmen. And we learn in a couple other places in Exodus where he's going to appoint, he says, all of these other folks, men and women who have this crafting skill, are going to join with them, but they're going to oversee this project as the master craftsmen. So God chooses them specifically, and then God fills them and equips them generously. He says they are filled with the Spirit. Filled him with the Spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. God matches the command that he has given Israel, create this tabernacle, with the calling of Bezalel and Oholiab. He's matched the purpose he has given them with the proficiency of the skills necessary to accomplish this. He has appointed them and given them expertise. Now, this is a bit of speculation here, but I think that the calling of Bezalel and Oliab could have gone one of two ways. One is that God said to Moses, these are the two guys, and everyone was like, really? Like, did you see what they put together in Miriam's pottery class? Like, it was bad. Like, these guys don't know what they're doing. Like, you better supernaturally help a brother out. Because this is not going to go well, right? This is like if God spoke audibly right here now and said, I call Josh to organize, file, plan, and administrate. And everybody would be like, uh, Lord, this is not going to go well. Like, you better, you better give that generous helping of the Spirit. You better supernaturally equip. And then, right, so that's one option, that he then supernaturally equipped them. They were totally unlike it and supernaturally equip them, and they could get everything done. Or, the more likely thing is that when God called them, everyone was like, yeah, of course. These guys were likely trained in the pagan universities of Egypt, graduated from the Amon Ra School of Craftsmanship at Pharaoh University, right? Like, these guys probably were trained in Egypt in how to do this. That's literally where they had just come from. How would they have known how to craft these things had they not been trained in those things? These guys were trained, skilled, and equipped. The calling of God, the filling of the Spirit, and the equipping of God, all of your life has aspects to this because you were crafted by God on purpose. Right? I think sometimes we look at a text like this and we think that this calling of God is this supernatural thing that has nothing to do with their natural gifts and abilities. But the reality is, if God is who he says he is, then your natural abilities are just as much a gift as the supernatural abilities. God crafted these two men. God knit them together in their mother's womb. God gave them the skills, the expertise, the calling, the passions, the experiences, and the natural talents, and the supernatural gifting of the Spirit to know all that God had planned for them. I think this supernatural gifting of the Spirit and wisdom is so that they would make the tabernacle exactly as God had commanded Moses and that they would understand those things. This idea that we can attribute some skills that you have to you and others to God in his gifting denies the reality of God's creation. All is God. All is a gift. right? Sometimes when you hear athletes speak about their skill... They say things like, you know, I worked hard. There's no one to thank but me for my skill. I've worked hard. Sure, 
you worked hard. But I could work harder than you every day of my life and never jump over someone and dunk on their great-great-grandkids like John Morant did the other night, right? If you haven't seen it, you got to look that dunk up. It's pretty amazing. Like, it doesn't matter how hard I work. That ain't happening. There's no way, right? <laughs> yeah, until we get some, like, uh, some uh, jet-powered shoes, it's not happening. That's a gift from God. So here's the question for you. What has God gifted you with? God specifically crafted you. What skills, passions, proficiencies do you have? What experiences do you have? All of this is a gift from God. You have some unique combination of skills and talents and experiences and personality that literally no one on the planet has. You're one in seven billion, or eight billion, however many there are. Lots. You're one in lots. Insanely unique, gloriously creative people. You were crafted with purpose. God is a master craftsman. He does not make trash. Not in the business of making trash. You are not worthless. You are not a wandering mistake. You are not a random accident. You, you specifically, are crafted by God with care. Broken, yes. Broken and fallen, yes yet maintaining the glorious, unique, image-bearing capability. You still bear God's image, and you have a purpose. Now, that purpose fits within God's grand purpose for humanity to love God and love neighbor, but you were crafted uniquely to do that in the world, just like Bezalel and Oholiab, given gifts to bless the Lord, to bless the people of God, and to bless the world. So you now can craft with purpose. Now, how, how do you do that? How do, how, do we, how do we determine what this is? Well, what are your passions? What are you passionate about? What do you care about? What wakes you up in the middle of the night? What is the thing that you're thinking about constantly? What are the things that you're interested in? What skills do you have? What effectiveness do you have in the world? What brings you joy? These are the things that you ought to think about. Write down, make a list, and then pray. Pray about those things. Pray about, God, would you reveal to me other ways in which I am uniquely crafted by you to bring you glory? Talk to other people. Talk to other people who know you. Let them speak into your life. Hey, I've noticed this thing that you do is really great. Also, you speak into the lives of others. If you notice skills and proficiencies and ways in which people are able to bless other people, speak into that. Share those things. Does it fit in with loving God and loving neighbor? Right? That's the biblical reason that you're given any skill whatsoever. You can glorify God by loving him and loving neighbor, right? If, you're, if the purpose you come up with doesn't fit that, it can't be the purpose you were created for. 
So if it fits within loving God and loving neighbor and you are passionate about it, you have skill in it, try it. Try new things. Now, it doesn't have to be something that you get paid for. Uh, All of us are uh, in this culture are running after side hustles. Sometimes you just need a hobby that you don't get paid for. A hobby. Try some classes. Try cooking. Try some DIY. Read about new things. Paint. Find new skills and jobs. Attend a trade school. Find something new. Whatever it is, right? Like there are opportunities available for you to try things to figure out what has God crafted me specifically to do. Now, that might sound awesome, but some of you feel like, okay, that sounds great, but I still feel a lot of frustration. Still feel a lot of frustration. I think there are a few reasons why we can feel frustration. Some of it is that we look at the position that we are in and look at that as our purpose. We confuse position with purpose. Position is really the current state of where you're at, whether that's a job position or a a long-term career or being in school or not working. That's a position, a state of life, uh, or retired or you're part-time or currently you're full-time parenting, which is a huge job, Uh, or you're living through disability, physical or mental disability, which prevents work. Whatever your position is, you might confuse that with your purpose. The purpose that you have is the combination of passion, skills, and calling that God has given you. Your purpose actually remains the same even as your position changes. Your purpose is tapping into the Imago Dei, being created in the image of God to bring him glory in a unique way in the world. Tapping into why God crafted you. Now, when your purpose and your, passion, uh, your position align, that's the sweet spot. Sometimes that doesn't happen. That's okay. Sometimes that doesn't happen. Now, sometimes the reason we're frustrated is because we make decisions based upon the best position available regardless of purpose. Now, that's something we can fix. We might be able to find a new position that fits our purpose better. But the reality is you might not always be able to find that because we live in a broken and fallen world. Sometimes you have to take a position from necessity. That's okay. But recognizing that you're taking a position from necessity is good because it can help you cope with and understand why I'm frustrated. Because I feel like I'm living outside of my purpose. And you can find ways to live out your purpose even if you don't get paid for it. (coughs) Excuse me. A lot of us need to find some new hobbies to live out our purpose to the glory of God. Another reason that we feel that frustration is because we live in a fallen world. It is beautifully made and yet it is profoundly broken, and it is being progressively redeemed. But that's the tension that we live in. So we are going to toil. Remember the curse that Adam receives in the garden is that you will sweat by your work. You will toil in your work. It will be hard. 
That's the reality of work. Even when we're working in our purpose, even when we feel like this is exactly what I was made to do, it's still going to be hard. But there is coming a day when sin and brokenness will be completely gone. Where we will live out our purpose without sin and brokenness. So, all right. Now you were crafted on purpose, so now you can craft with purpose. All right, let's get to it. Let's get to work. Let's do it. Let's rise and grind and craft to the glory of God. Let's get it done. But wait, but wait. Here's something crucial and important. This will be a a shorter point, but it is crucial for us. You are more than what you do. Finding your purpose God crafted you on purpose with a purpose. Yes, you have skills to work and craft and create and bless. But friends, you are more than that purpose. You are also to just be before the Lord. Not just to do for him, but just be with him. The text that we're in this morning takes a very quick turn from talking about these two craftsmen and their work and how all of the all of Israel is going to be gifted to work and create this tabernacle and takes a quick turn to obeying the Sabbath. And it is to show you that you are more than just what you do. We craft with purpose because we were crafted with purpose and we rest with pleasure because we we were crafted with purpose. All right, let's read on in the text. Then the Lord gave these instructions to Moses. Tell the people of Israel, be careful to keep my Sabbath day, for the Sabbath is a sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. It is given so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. You must keep the Sabbath day, for it is a holy day for you. Anyone who desecrates it must be put to death. Anyone who works on that day will be cut off from the community. You have six days each week for your ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. Anyone who works on the Sabbath must be put to death. The people of Israel must keep the Sabbath day by observing it from generation to generation. This is an obliga- a covenant obligation for all time. It is a permanent sign of my covenant with the people of Israel. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day he stopped working and was refreshed. When the Lord finished speaking with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two stone tablets inscribed with the terms of the covenant written by the finger of God. Keep my Sabbath. Now Why? So that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. What does he say? This is the sign of the covenant between me and you from generation to generation. What does working six days and resting one day of complete rest and worship, what does that do to show us that he is the Lord who makes us holy? And why is he so serious about it? Anyone who breaks it is to be put to death? Like, that seems a little intense, right? This is right alongside, do not murder. Murder, okay, I get that one. Let's not do that. Working on a Sabbath. That's a little intense, Lord. 
Why? Why so serious? Well, I think the instances of Sabbath breaking in the, new, in the book of Exodus show us why this is so important. R- remember, when Israel is first delivered out of Egypt, they're complaining, hey, we don't have any food. And the Lord's like, okay, I'm going to give you manna from heaven. Bread from heaven It's going to fall. You're going to go out and you're going to pick it up every morning. But on the Sabbath, don't go out and get it. Because the day before, you're going to get double portion. So don't go out and get it. You know what they do the very first time? They go out on the Sabbath. They go out to collect more on the day that they were told, don't do it. Why? Because they don't trust God. They don't trust that God's actually going to provide for them. That God is actually going to show up like he says he is. No, no, no. Do you not understand we just came out of slavery? Do you not understand that we cried out to you and you waited 400 years? How do we trust you? We got to go get it when we have it. How can we trust you? Sabbath breaking shows and says to God, you don't know best. I do. I don't trust you. You didn't craft us on purpose. You aren't sovereign, powerful, glorious, good, loving, and wonderful. It denies that God is going to provide. It denies that God has provided you with a purpose to live out and the space to do it. It says, I am my own and I need to make my own way. And this is why this is so serious. Friends, something that the book of Exodus has shown us over and over again, and it's part of the whole storyline of the Bible and of this section of the tabernacle and of you working out your gifts and skills and abilities that are given to you, it's that you are not God. You are not God. Now, the storyline of the Bible is so good because it goes on to say there is a God and he is wonderful, but you are not that God. You are not God. The Sabbath, when we really think about it, is one of the craziest laws in the New Testament, or I mean in the, in the uh, Ten Commandments. You mean, God, that you're going to show the world what your covenant is like and who, who you're like and how you're holy. You're going to show them that. You're going to show them that your invisible God what your invisible God is like by resting? That doesn't make any sense. Not by sacrifice. Not by the intense sacrifice of your people. But by resting? Not by service. Not by symbols or images, but by resting. One of my favorite stories in, uh, in the, the section of Kings is when uh, the prophets of Baal go against the prophets or get against the prophet Elijah and they're trying to showcase whose God is right and the prophets of Baal are like cutting themselves they're making all of these incredible sacrifices all these things to show like God is going to show up and he's going to burn this thing up and Elijah's like hey wait a minute like maybe yell a little louder maybe maybe your God's on the toilet He can't hear you. Maybe he's sleeping. And then he says, 
bring some water and pour water on the altar. And actually bring some more. Let's dig a trench and pour it full of water. Let's soak it completely. And then the Lord shows up and ignites the fire. What did Elijah do? Nothing, really. Rested in the sovereign work of God. God is not on display in the world by your sacrifice. He doesn't need you to show the world who he is. He is fully capable of doing that himself. Now, does he call us to sacrifice? Absolutely. But not from a position of declaring to the world how great he is. He's got that one covered. So you can rest. You can rest. You are not God. You can rest. You were crafted by God with purpose. You craft, yes. And you will be a master craftsman in something, but you are not the master craftsman. God is. So you get to rest in his pleasure. You get to just be before him as you are. Not rising and grinding and earning, but resting. This is true in our work, and it's true in the gospel. You see, the glory of the Sabbath is it teaches us to rest in Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, it says this, now if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, Joshua succeeds Moses, right? He comes after Moses. If Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. Now, certainly this is true of resting from our physical labors as God did and resting before God. But it's more than that. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God as the people of Israel did, we will fail. We will fall. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes, and he is the one to whom we are accountable. So in light of all of this, right, in light of uh, you need to rest so that you don't fail to enter like Israel did, this is a big deal. And the word of God is going to expose all of you. So in light of all that, work really hard. No. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testing we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Remember, we looked at this when we were talking about the innermost part of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, the place of atonement. This is what the author to Hebrews is referring to. Because God is so glorious because his word is so sharp and exposing everything. And because there's this rest out here that if you fail or if you disobey, you will fail to strive or to to receive. What you need to do is rest in 
Jesus. Not work hard. Not show Him how worthy you are to enter into this place of rest. But to rest from your laboring before God to earn His favor. To rest in the person of Jesus who has done all the work on your behalf. Resting from your good works for salvation. Trusting in Jesus and His provision. Trusting in Him. Resting in Him. Just being before Him. This is the good news of the Gospel. And this is what our rest showcases. That you can rest because God has provided a way for you to enter into His glory. It's also why you can rest from your work. Because God has provided for you. See how those things are connected? You see, when we trust in Jesus and His provision... In that security, we can actually find our purpose. Why? Because it's okay to fail. If I'm actually fully secure in Jesus, if he loves me just because he created me and not because of what I do for him, then guess what? If I try something and it's not my purpose, okay. He still loves you. Try something else. I can actually think about those things. I can actually... Go after that stuff because I'm secure in Jesus. See, the wisdom of the Scriptures is to put together this chapter on these two master craftsmen and your work and Sabbath keeping and your rest. Because the way in which you find your purpose in crafting for the glory of God is by resting in Jesus. In that We can find our purpose, and then we can craft for the glory of God, bringing a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth to this place. Now, here's the crazy thing. The Sabbath rest for the people of God in Exodus was Saturday, the last day of the week. God worked six days and then rested. You know, in the New Testament, we worship on Sunday. Our Sabbath day is on Sunday because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. He rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And that meant more than just we're going to gather on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Absolutely. But it meant more than that. You see, the logic is bigger than that. We rest on the first day of the week because all the work is done. All the work is done. All the work for salvation is completely accomplished. You're not earning any of it. You are resting first. You are resting first because the work is done. Then we work because we are accepted and known and loved by God. You're able to just be before Him, to rest before Him, to rest in His pleasure. We rest in his pleasure in you just being before him so that then we can find our purpose and go out and do for his glory. This is the good news of the gospel. Join together in prayer. Father, we come before you because we know this is so good for us. We know that we are to rest. 
We know that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. We know that you love us. We know that you provide for us. And yet, Lord, we resist it constantly because we don't trust you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let us just rest before you. And then, God, in that rest, in that security, in that comfort, would you showcase to us our purpose so that we would craft to your glory and shape this world to be a foretaste of the new heavens and new earth, that we would shape it from darkness and brokenness to light and beauty, that we would declare to the rest of the world in all the things that we do that you are glorious and beautiful and that you have made this universe to bring you glory. God, would you do all these things for the glory of King Jesus, we pray in Christ's name, amen.